Hello and welcome to the Reborn Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. And yes, Talking Finance is back in a slightly different format and a different day. What we're going to do is provide a succinct weekly summary of what's going on across four key areas. The market, the economy, politics and technology. And of course, there'll be a bit of music. Because what's life without music? This week, it's all about politics and specifically energy policy. After the government basically ditched the Finkel clean energy target and Tony Abbott went mad in London. Phil Coury, chief political correspondent at the AFR, will tell us about the politics of it all. And Tristan Edis from Green Energy Markets will fill us in on the technology and specifically why we still need a CET, even though renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels now, as Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg said this week. Market strategist Evan Lucas will talk about the low volatility on the market and the upcoming bank reporting season. And Nerida Connorsby, the chief economist at REA Group, will put housing finance data under the microscope. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. Joining me now is Phil Curry, who is the Chief Political Correspondent of the AFR. Now, Phil, um, it was an interesting speech that um, Abbott delivered in London the other night. I suppose that's the main political event of the week. And, I, and it seems to me, as I read it, that it's a political speech. I mean, it's obviously not scientific at all. But what, mm. do, you think, what, what do you think is the political... Uh, aim of it is it simply to uh, to cause trouble for Turnbull, or has, he, or has he got some kind of more more um, Machiavellian purpose in mind? Oh, look, look, well, principally, principally, the speech is designed to cause trouble for Turnbull, um, and then I think to a lesser extent, um, just to sort of wave the flag, yeah, for, for the for the you know, the arch conservative arm of the party, but they're pretty much the same thing. Look, Tony Abbott has. And, and without you know, being overtly critical, but he's had every conceivable position on this policy since 2009. Um, you know, he's been an avid, you know, backer of, of climate change policy. If you go back eight, nine years, you know, he was begging Turnbull in 2009 to do a deal with Rudd on a CPRS. Um, and he's, as Prime Minister, he spent billions of dollars on emissions reduction and you know, committed Australia to the Paris... Par- well, he's the also, Paris um, Phil, he's also, uh, uh, he's also admitted to being a uh, weather vane on pretty much everything. That, that, so. That's right. And, and, you know, I think the common denominator throughout the last decade is that everything has been motivated by political expediency. You know, there, there's, there's never been any real belief in any of the positions he's had. I think the one he's arrived at in the last few months in which he crystallised in that speech in London is his happy place. That's, that's his true view, that, he's, that he doesn't believe in any of it. Um, and, uh, and it's all about, um, you know, the entire policy should be motivated by, by cost and nothing to do with emissions reduction. So, you know, essentially if, if he had his way, you'd probably burn old tyres to generate electricity because there should be no, no dipping of the lid towards emissions reduction. And I think that's where Abbott's always been and, and through his time as both opposition leader and prime minister, he's done, he's paid lip service to, to the science of climate change because he's had to, but he's never believed it. But do you think um, that, um, do you think that Turnbull and Frydenberg would be more, would be actually inclined to go along with a CE to clean energy target and a bipartisan sort of policy uh, if it wasn't for Tony Abbott? Do, I mean, well, I, I suppose I, I'm asking I how, so, much, yes, how much I mean, influence... It's not just Abbott. There's a few of them in the, in, in the backbench. Yeah, that's um, right. But across, they're, led, across, they're led by Abbott, aren't they? 
Yeah, he, he articulates there. Um, he articulates. He's not. He's not. He's not their spiritual leader as such. I mean, it's actually people like Angus Taylor and so forth who are the one. They're, they're the because they actually understand the policy. So they're the ones the backbenchers go to to you know to, to sort of form their views. Abbott doesn't really have much of a grasp of policy at all. He never has. It's all you know slogans and politics. So, but what he does do is he's like the lightning rod. He, he articulates the view better than anyone else uh, on, in that camp. So I think without him. It would be a lot easier um, to, to, for Turnbull to have stuck with the CET. I mean, the CET, as, as we know, was sort of put up as a compromise. Um, it's not, you know, it, it wasn't as robust as an emissions intensity scheme or anything like that. And it was also the policy John Howard and was, was pursuing, you know, in, in, the, in the dying days of his prime ministership. It's not a new thing. And it sort of made sense, and Labor was prepared to agree to it, and, and we, you know, again, we came close to some sort of bipartisanship. But now, um, you know, yeah, you're right, Abbott's, you know, his his, his sort of uh, carrying on about it has made it very difficult for Turnbull, and I, and you know, that was he made his view very obvious after Finkel released his report. Remember, Abbott called it a magic pudding, um, and essentially, you know, you know, became a rallying point for dissent. And for that, from, I think it was not long after that, the government decided they weren't going to go down this path. So broadly, Phil, what's your assessment of the balance now between what you'd call the far right in the coalition and, mm. the, and the moderates? Look, it, it's, it's probably not that simple because the, the, the right is, is sort of divided. I mean, the far, far right, if you're talking Abbott's or Betts, Kevin Andrews, people like that, they're very much a minority. Um, but the bulk of the right, uh, and is the one being led by Coleman, Peter Dutton, Scott Morrison seems to be back in the fold now. Um, you know, young Turks like Michael Sukar and Zed Seselja, they're, they're far more pragmatic. They're actually not interested in tearing down the government. They actually want to win the election. They're the ones, especially Dutton and uh, Coleman, have been holding the government together. They've been keeping the right united behind Turnbull and the party. You notice Dutton said on um, Thursday night in Sydney at the Australian Financial Review Power Series launch, he said, you know, loyalty is the new black. I mean, Dutton actually wants to make the show work. So the bulk of the, yeah, they want to win the election. They're not interested in another leadership challenge. Or It was or interesting that Dutton, Dutton said today or yesterday that um, mm. he now thinks same, the same-sex marriage debate will, will go to the yes side. Um, mm. uh, what what do you think that that result will mean for the uh, for the party? Well, that, that's exactly right, Alan. I mean, you, the, the, I mean, this, and this sort of goes to your point about the right, the, the, the far far right, like Abbott, and they they, they relish the, this plebiscite because they saw it as an opportunity to defeat. The, the, the vote, but Dutton and, and Corman and them saw it as a management exercise. They they were aware that yeah they pretty much resigned to the fact that the yes vote was going to win. But what so they want they pushed this plebiscite for two reasons. They didn't want this issue lingering until the next election as a distraction. They wanted it out of the way by Christmas. And if they had the plebiscite, then the conservative arm of the party, both the politicians and and, and the voters, would have been. You know, at least be able to say, well, at least we had a say, right? So, and 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 it wasn't foisted on us by the parliament, and that and that's a sort of, and 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 you can't quibble with the result. And so that that goes to your question, um, what does it mean for the party? It means there'll, there'll be peace, and, and that this issue has been very well managed, and it's actually been very cleverly managed by Dutton and Corman and and Morrison was 
because if you notice they haven't been out there campaigning against it, they just let the process run, knowing that it was going to get up, probably p- privately hoping it was going to get up because they do not want this thing on the agenda post Christmas when they you know they'll need some clean air. So I think it'll just go away, and um, you know they'll they'll quickly pass a bill. I wouldn't I wouldn't fall for this thing that there's going to be months of squabbling over religious freedoms and stuff like that because there's no appetite amongst most of the Conservatives for that. Abbott and Abbott and them may try it on, but you'll find this thing will get resolved pretty quickly and the vote will whiz through um, the Parliament before Christmas and it'll be just like the apology to the stolen generation and all these um, predictions of doom and gloom will never come to pass and uh, the sun will rise and people will be happy and, you know, and they'll go and find something else to complain about. I'm joined now by Tristan Edis from Green Energy Markets, used to be the Climate Spectator editor with me at Business Spectator. G'day, Tristan. Thanks for joining us. G'day, Alan. Now, Josh Frydenberg said on uh, Monday that um, probably don't need the clean energy target because the cost of renewables has fallen so much. I mean, he's just using that to wriggle out of it, I guess. But uh, Finkel then came out and said uh, something like, well, we do need it, even though the cost of renewables has fallen. But just tell us, I mean, where are we at with the cost of renewables? I mean, is it is it possible to simply tell us uh, whether renewables are cheaper now than fossil fuels? Yeah, look, I think you can say that quite confidently. And, and uh, there's a range of people, you know, that aren't sort of linked, I suppose, with the green side of, of things who are, who are saying that, you know, the likes of um, major uh, power company uh, executives in Australia, but also overseas, um, that, are, that are that are backing that up, and I suppose as a, a metric for for people is uh, we're seeing long-term contracts signed for wind and and solar farms in the range of around uh, fifty to seventy dollars a megawatt hour, and uh, probably with a middle range of around fifty-five to sixty-five dollars a megawatt hour, and uh, expert analyses of underlying costs for a gas-fired a new gas-fired power plant, not an existing one. So where you have to pay for the, the capex, you're probably looking at around ninety dollars a megawatt hour, and for a new coal plant, taking into account the um, the higher risk profile that financiers apply to that, so they they require a higher return, and um, you can get lower debt in in something like that. You're looking at something closer to around one hundred and twenty dollars a megawatt hour, but um, you know it's a bit rubbery with coal because of the fact that there's just such a high risk associated. Um, with financing that, that yeah, you sort of there's no real um, clear benchmarks there, but that gives you a feel for it. So sixty-five dollars for renewables versus ninety dollars for gas. So Frydenberg's right, really. We don't need a clean energy target, or indeed a renewable energy target, in order to subsidise renewable energies if they are cheaper than everything else. So that's that is. Right. If we felt that, so we've got overlaid on top of that is a, is a time frame by which we've got to achieve emission reductions. So ultimately, the coal plant are going to wear out, and they'll get replaced, and they'll probably get placed replaced with a mixture of renewables and a bit of gas. And then further down the track, as battery costs go down, they'll get replaced by a mixture of renewables and and batteries, and probably some pumped hydro too will get thrown into the mix. And, and that's the way you'd see it happen. The, the issue is around how fast you want to execute the um, reduction in emissions 
and also reductions in power prices. So at the moment, the issue is that um, people aren't, uh, and this is a particular issue for banks, is what they'll do is they'll look at, someone comes to them and says, look, I'd like to build a new um, solar farm or a new wind farm. And they'll say, okay, have you got a long-term power purchase agreement with a large retailer that guarantees a set power price for that at $65? If you do, great, I'll, I'll, I'll sign the thing up. Um, but the issue is that those uh, power retailers look at this and think, well, if I support new generation into the mix and I give them a guaranteed price, that's all great, but then it's going to reduce power prices for my other existing generators and it could suppress the price substantially such that I end up losing more money than I gain from my other portfolio of generators. And so they say, no, I'm not going to sign you long-term power purchase agreements uh, ad infinitum until I squeeze the returns on my other power generators. So then it's like we need, we need plant that's going to come in that is just about the wholesale power price. And at that point, and, and not having someone standing at the other end guaranteeing the price for the next two years, at that point, so that's why. That, so that's why the the renewable energy certificates are important for the Kangaroo Yard one, which is a huge wind farm uh, that Origin has bought long. To, you know, has agreed to a long term supply contract on. Yeah, um, yeah Stockyard Hill. Yeah. Sorry, is it, is it, oh, Stockyard Hill. Sorry, Kangaroo Yard. I don't know where I got that from. Uh, Stockyard <laughs> yeah. Hill. Yeah. So it was. It's fifty three dollars, which is roughly what you said it was. But on top of that, there's the uh, renewable energy certificate, and that keeps. What you're saying is that the two, the, ad, the addition of the two maintains prices, electricity prices, such that they continue to make money on their other uh, generation. Well, well the, the, the issue is that they're going to... The, the, so if you created, say, a clean energy target and you've got this credit coming in here and, and you've got a demand for more and more credits, what it does to the, the, the bank will sit there and say, well, number one, if you've got someone that's prepared to write your long-term power power price agreement and that's great I'll, I'll lend you the money no worries but the the next issue is um that will only happen to a certain extent before the retailers say look i'm i'm not going to do this anymore because it's undermining the prices for my other portfolio of generators and then you need you need um confidence uh, amongst financiers that um that that new wind farm without a without a guaranteed price from um you know an origin or an agl will still make money and what happens is they say, um, if we have a whole heap of wind in or a whole heap of solar in, when it's sunny or it's windy, what's going to happen is the price of electricity is not going to be set by gas anymore. It's going to be set by the, the operating cost, the pure operating cost of a coal plant. And that is about $35 a megawatt hour. So when it's windy, the price is $35. It's not you know, eighty or or seventy dollars or anything close to the sixty-five I, I need. It's thirty-five, and I'm not going to lend to you on that basis because I'm afraid that someone else will build a bunch of solar farms or someone else will build a bunch of wind farms that will then end up suppressing the price down to the operating cost of an existing coal plant. And that's the dilemma we're at, where a clean energy target acts as essentially an insurance policy to that, that financier that says, if we end up in a situation where we've got so much renewables in that it starts um, pushing out not just gas, but a substantial amount of coal, such that 
power prices plunge to that operating cost of 35, it won't because I'll be taken care of by having this carbon credit revenue stream as well that will essentially cover me for that eventuality. And so that's why the the carbon credit or this clean energy target or renewable uh, an extended renewable energy target is very important to financing these renewables projects, even though their costs right now are below the overall average wholesale electricity price because there's a risk that once you build too much wind or too much solar, suddenly that wholesale price will collapse and it'll collapse down to $35 and then people are going bankrupt. Joining me now is market commentator Evan Lucas. And now, Evan, it seems to me that volatility is really low on the market. What do you think of that? Yeah, it is low at the moment. Um, and actually, if you sort of the way I look at volatility is you've got to look at it across the year. So volatility begets volatility. And what I mean by that is that it works in clusters. So in low volatility, it tends to get lower. And if you have a look at the volatility index over the last couple of days even, it's, it's heading towards a monthly low. In Australia, it's just over, not much, but just over 11. In the US, it's below 10. And that is, you know, what would normally be divided as sort of what we call complacency level. It means nobody's looking at protecting their portfolio, which is interesting. But at the same time, as I said, we are that low because there hasn't been a gyration event to really move volatility quickly and fast to the upside. So when there's a negative event, we've had Interesting events this year that should normally, under what we'd seen over the last five years, cause volatility to spike up. So we've had the issues around North Korea. We've had some interesting developments out of the US, particularly with President Trump's sort of speeches. Uh, We've had some pretty big elections this year in Europe, particularly, that would normally, at least in 2012, probably through to 2015, would have caused volatility to spike. They just haven't been there. It shows, therefore, that the underlying market fundamentals are actually quite strong. And that's the way to also look at it, is that the economic growth is filtering through into actuals and probably explains why, as a whole, the market is quite stable compared to what it was probably two to three years ago. Do you think a bit of complacency is creeping in? I do. Uh, and, and again, if you look at the way a volatility index works, particularly in equity volatility, it is basically the ratio between call and put options. Um, and if people are buying puts, which is clearly what they're not doing with the VIX that low, it does suggest that the complacency and therefore the cost of putting protection into your portfolio is is seen as not worth it, and that can therefore breed that complacency idea. You were uh, telling me um, about a a complacency index that's been developed. Mm -hmm. um, Who buy and uh, what does it show? Yeah, Deutsche Bank developed what they call their complacency index, so it feeds in several factors. The big one is volatility. Uh, It also feeds in um, other sort of volumes they see in FX markets, they see trading in, in equities and, and those that are taking short positions, all this sort of into one level to build what they call the Deutsche Bank Complacency Index. Uh, it's done mainly in the US and, and it's sitting at what they call their, their ultra complacency level. So it's sitting at 15, which is really at the top end of their scale. Normally when they see that level hit, they do see a, a slight pullback towards sort of more normalistic areas, which they say is between 8 and 10, which normally means a bit of a move up in volatility, a little bit of extra sort of movement in FX markets and and, and also in shorts in inequity. So it is certainly a, a thing to be aware of. And Deutsche Bank are very, very strong on this as, a, as an idea that does actually sort of revert back to a mean idea. But, but looking at the history of Deutsche's um, complacency index, 
does it usually result, when it's low, does it usually result in a correction? No, it doesn't. And they are very strong at pointing this out. It, it gets back down to, as I said at the start, the clustering that, that is volatility. It tends to move away from the extremes. And they would argue at the moment at 15, that's probably bordering on that, but not by much. And that might be just it won't actually see a movement in the equity market. It will just see people picking up cheap opportunities in the in the put market because puts are cheap to just basically hedge their portfolio, put insurance inside of it and move it back to a more normal level. So normally for volatility to spike up, at least in current market and what we've learned over the last sort of couple of years conditions, it's normally an event. And at the moment, most events are fairly well forecast. Things like the Fed rate rise in December, uh, you know, election sort of, uh, there isn't any major elections going on globally at the moment. All of that is therefore factored in. It would be an unforeseen event that could possibly cause volatility to spike and revert back quite quickly. But what they also point out, and Deutsche is very clear on this, is that when that does happen, uh, it's normally fairly short-lived. Um, it might happen for a couple of months, you know, maybe even just a week. But they, they do say that it will move away from the extreme, but not at a level that will cause alarm in market participants. Now, we saw Bank of Queensland kick off the bank reporting season uh, yesterday, as it always does. Um, uh, what sort of impact do you think that's likely to have? It's, I, I always like watching Bank of Queensland for exactly as you point out, which is that it's the, the sort of almost the, the gunfire for, for the rest of the main earnings season. They were actually really quite solid today. And, and what you really want to look at is the banks have seen that at the start of this year, Net interest margins were under a little bit of pressure as they repriced mortgages. Uh, they also saw bad and doubtful debts being questioned about whether or not the, the current low cycle could continue and also whether or not you know just the organic growth in, in cash earnings would continue. And their results today for the second half are, are really positive. Now, I would point out that they were one of the last to move on repricing their loans, so that may have been also a bit of a laggard in terms of cash returns, but it was a good result. They showed that bad and doubtful debts are still at the bottom of the cycle, it actually improved for their numbers, which is, is quite impressive. And they showed that they're still managing to navigate what is a, a tricky period for banks with, you know, the housing price growth slowing down, uh, the questions around macro potential rules and how much of an impact that will have, and lending practices as a whole. They still showed that their lending grew quite nicely, and therefore you would expect that to happen for the other banks reporting in a couple of weeks' time. So, on balance, you think that uh, it looks like the bank reporting season will be a positive for the market? It should be. It should be solid, and that's the way I'd... I wouldn't say it's going to shoot the lights out. It's not going to be a, a 2013 I or I suppose it depends. I suppose it depends on where expectations are at. Correct. Um, and, you know, we, everybody's pointed out that a lot of the banks, particularly over the last four months, have, have rebased lower. You know, PE ratios are, are back at what some analysts would describe as cheap, Um and that is certainly a suggestion that it would be a positive for the bank earnings season if they deliver solid results. It's also a positive for the ASX, considering the, the size of market share that they make up on our market cap weighting, 25% of the big four banks. And we've got 20%, well, sorry, about 18% of them with Westpac, NAB and ANZ due to report in a week and a half time firing off with, with ANZ. So if they deliver solid results, they do add between you know 3 to, to even as much as 6% off the back of the results, that will definitely filter through to the ASX and maybe break it out of its malaise that it's currently in. Housing finance data came out today. Overall, housing finance up 2.1%. Uh, but some interesting detail 
in the data. So let's ask Nerida Connorsby, the Chief Economist at REA Group, firstly, what a reaction to that is, and also what's going on within the databases and the websites of REA. Here's Nerida Connorsby. Look, the first home buyer increase was, was good news. I mean, that was stronger than many expected, and um, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, where it looks like a lot of those first home buyer grants are, are having a positive impact for those sorts of borrowers. The investor loans increased 4.3%. Was that a surprise to you? Yeah, look, it was surprising. I mean, it's certainly stronger, I think, than APRA are wanting. I mean, the, the market, for the, the investor market has been very strong for quite some time and there has been a lot of measures to try and slow down activity. So uh, whether it's a one-off remains to be seen. And, and certainly when we have a look on our site, it does appear that investor investors looking for property on site is coming back and um, and particularly looking at apartments seems to be the most impacted. So, so you know, I think maybe it's a one-off, but it will be interesting to have a look at those uh, investor lending figures over the next few months to see if they do so, start to moderate again. So in your REA numbers, you're seeing um, data data that would, that would actually confirm what the uh, ABS is seeing as well. Now, what we're seeing on our site is uh, declines in activity from buyers looking at apartments, and particularly in Melbourne and Sydney. So we know that the majority of apartment stock is owned by investors. We know that um, you know the ABS have calculated in the census that around 60% of apartments in Australia are owned by investors, uh, and we're seeing this drop-off in, invest- in apartment demand. So it does suggest that uh, investors are starting to back away a little bit in the market. Uh, it's not showing up in the housing finance figures, though. And those, those figures that were released today certainly show that there's still a lot of investor activity in the market and, um, and there's been more and more borrowing. Right. But so that's a bit delayed, isn't it? I mean, what you're seeing is absolutely current. Yeah, it is. I mean, the, the figures that came out today from the ABS were from August, and you know, we, we know we can day to day in terms of, of what's happening with demand. And in Melbourne and Sydney at the moment, we are starting to see far more moderate levels of demand coming through, but really hitting that apartment market more than houses, which which seems to be holding up a lot better. So, what's your view about the prognosis then of, in particular, the Sydney and Melbourne property markets? But it looks like prices are going to continue to slow, and the main reason being is that although the Reserve Bank isn't moving on interest rates, we are seeing many of the banks increase rates, uh, particularly to investors, uh, and making it far more difficult to get finance. So that does have a direct impact on demand on our site. We can see it over time that in any increase in interest, interest rates does lead to more moderate activity. Uh, things in Perth, though, are looking a bit different. And it was, it's interesting that over the past month, although Sydney and Melbourne started to see a bit of a drop-off in demand, uh, we start to see very moderate increases uh, occurring in, in the Perth market. So we, so we do think that Perth is now close to the bottom of the market and demand is starting to flow through, and it will start to flow through the price growth. So when you say, with regard to Melbourne and Sydney, that you'd like to see prices continue to slow, do you mean fall? Or, or rise more slowly? Uh, not fall at this stage. I mean, we're still seeing very, very high levels of demand. It's just that it's come back over the past month. Uh, we're not seeing big drops in demand. And, and I think realistically, the only way that will happen is if we start to see job loss in Melbourne and Sydney, or we start to see rapid increases in interest rates. And, and right now that's not happening. But, you know, if, if down the track, they do happen. 
uh, that does tend to have a far more negative impact on demand and, and flows through to prices. There was a report out the other day from Hassan Tevik of uh, Credit Suisse, who, and he said that there's absolutely no evidence of Chinese buyers uh, leaving the market. Um, is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, so do, we, do you um, know you know, that? we we do. Yeah, we do know. I mean, we know. Well, we know how many Chinese are looking at Australian property. Uh, it did go down a few months ago. Um, it is going back up the last couple of months, um, but there is a lot of geographic differences. So. Uh, if we have a look in Adelaide and Sydney, we are seeing a decline in property seekers from China, looking at both those cities. Uh, but if we have a look at Brisbane and Melbourne at the moment, we're continuing to see rising increases in Chinese-based property seekers. So there is, you know, again, like the, the whole property market, there are some real regional differences as to how Chinese are looking on site. I think the big factor, though, for Chinese is education. And, um, you know, when we look at the top two suburbs that Chinese are looking at, number one is Carlton and number two is Clayton. And I think provided that our university sector in Australia remains strong and we continue to attract a lot of uh, Asian students, that will continue to support uh, property demand from, from those buyers. Even Tasmania, I mean, Hobart's been so interesting because Hobart's been a 70% jump in Chinese-based property seekers looking at that market and... Uh, apparently, I mean, I thought it was tourism at first, which I think it is a little bit linked to the fact we've seen a lot of tourism demand, but uh, apparently the University of uh, Tasmania has done quite a, a big marketing campaign to, to Asian students, and, and again, that flows through to, to housing demand on site. Happy birthday, Paul Simon. 76 today, and yes, you can call me Al. down the street he says why am i soft in the middle now why am i soft in the middle the rest of my life is so hard i need a photo opportunity i want a shot of redemption don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard bone digger bone digger dogs in the moonlight far away my well-lit door mr beer belly beer belly get these mutts away from me you know i don't find this stuff amusing that's it for talking finance let us know what you think about it, or anything else for that matter, by writing to hello at theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a constant week.